You're listening to Michael Easley in Context. Today on In Context, we have something a little bit different. A few months ago, Alex Judd from Path for Growth interviewed Michael for his podcast, which is focused on helping leaders practice healthy growth. And they had a great conversation that was two episodes worth of talking about Michael's personal story of how he fell in love and became a student of scripture, why it's so important for us to study scripture, how to study scripture. So we thought we would take an excerpt of those two episodes and repackage it for in context for our listeners, because we know that you guys will love this conversation. So please enjoy Alex Judd and Michael Easley. Well, Dr. E, we're so stoked about this. The way that I coincided with you it was a handful of years ago now, I heard you give a message and I remember just leaving kind of thinking like, oh my gosh, that guy is just a student of the Bible. Like you, I mean, it just seems like you take it very seriously and you study it deeply and you've done that for a long time. I'd love to know kind of before we jump in how this applies to everyone else, what is the story of your relationship with this book? Like, did you grow up being a student of this book or what is the story of how you kind of came to fall in love with it the way you are now? I was raised in a very devout Catholic home My parents went to Mass every day of their married lives. They were married 62-some years before Dad passed away. He traveled for a living. He went to a Mass in every city. He was a salesman. Every city he went to Mass first thing in the morning before his sales calls. We went to parochial schools, Catholic schools. So there was no other thing. I compare myself to being raised Jewish. That's all we knew. Our church, our parish, our school, our friends were all Catholic. So in junior high, I got involved in drugs pretty heavily. I was probably 14 years old when I first got into drugs. And by 15 years of age, had a bit of a crisis. I noticed all my friends were deadheads. And ironically, even though I was a drug user, I mowed yards. You know, we didn't get an allowance. We had to earn our money. I liked school. You know, I clothed myself. I didn't look like a a druggie, you know. (laughs) I called myself an intelligent drug user. (laughs) Yeah, I was able to manage life real well, but I got to this gestalt where if this is all there is, is getting high and hanging around with people that are low lives, I need some help. Coinciding, there was a Sunday school class that I was attending, mandatory, called CCD in the Catholic Church. And a man who was teaching it, Ridley Fontenot, gave us a paperback copy of the Gospel of John. He wrote with white chalk on a green chalkboard the verse John 3.16. We read the story of Nicodemus. I had hair down past my shoulders, Alex. And I'm sitting in the back, nine, ten kids. None of us wanted to be there. We had to be there. Arms crossed, listening to this story, reading that verse. And he underlines the word believe. And, you know, memory fails. That's a long time ago. But I remember asking a series of questions, raising my hand. Are you telling me all I got to do is believe? And he said, what's the verse say? I said, what about confession? What about communion? What about contrition? What about keeping the sacraments? And he said, what's the verse say? And I don't know if there was three or nine questions, but every time I asked, he goes, what does it say? And that moment, Alex, long hair, whole nine yards. I mean, I said, I believe, I believe. And something changed. I didn't understand. I didn't know what was going on. But at that moment, I trusted Christ and my life changed. I got intoxicated, drunk, stoned three subsequent times, and each time was a disaster. And the last time it was like, okay, Lord, I'm done with this, which meant disassociating most of my friends who were in the drug culture. And now I start reading this book. I don't know how to read it. Yeah. I, don't know, I don't know where to begin. I'm 15 years old. How, how, what grade are you in, ninth grade? I don't know what to think, but I'm reading it. And I bounced around like a ping pong. I got real involved in the Catholic Church. And by my first year in college, 
I had some Christian roommates. I met a couple of Christians along the way. I mean, not to be indelicate, but most Catholics believe a lot of things, but I don't know many that are truly confident in their salvation. I don't know many who could articulate what it means to know God. They're Catholic in a way my friends are Jewish, in a way my friends are whatever. So not to be unkind, but I just I think that the message is lost in the rituals. That said, I have college roommates, they're Christians, and next thing I know, I'm in Bible studies, and I'm reading like crazy, and I double-dipped for two years. I went to the Catholic Church to cover my obligation, and I went to a Bible church. <laughs> there you go. You got them both covered. <laughs> well, and that's a, that's a long story for another time, but the first time I heard someone teach the Bible, I think I was a 11th grade, maybe 12th grade, and uh, Dr. Robert Tolson, he's retired now in Arizona, Bob Tolson opened up the Bible, he was preaching through Matthew ironically preaching the passage to Peter, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, which is a very important Catholic verse. And my mouth was hanging open for 45 minutes. And when he stopped, I went, don't stop, keep talking. Oh, wow. You were captivated. And I tell people, having never tasted sugar, someone gave me a milkshake. And I was immediately addicted and compelled. What does that book say? And so that began my journey. And by my first year of college, I was thinking about seminary, thinking about med school, a lot of different things rolling around. But the short answer is I was exposed to it. I came to Christ between ninth and 10th grade. By 11th, 12th grade, I'm exposed to the Bible. And by college, I'm all in. I am in Bible studies. I don't know what I don't know. <laughs> and, and ironically, by my second or third year of college, I'm leading a Bible study and teaching in a Sunday school class at a local church there which they should have never let me do. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Looking back yeah, on no, it. Oh, gosh. I'm glad they aren't on tape or recorded or YouTube. Did be, you know. The thing that strikes me about that is it's like, it's not like, I mean, you hear some stories now about countries that are kind of like oppressed by tyrannical rule. And it's like, I didn't have access to the Bible. And then one day I gained access and right. now my life has changed forever. Yours is like the Bible was in front of you for years. Yeah, yeah. And then something shifted in ninth, 10th, 11th grade yeah. where it's like the value, power, meaning of the book changed in your mind so much. And yeah. and that I think that's the story of so many Americans today. It's like, it's not that they don't read the Bible or don't connect with the Bible for lack of access. It's that something has to shift. What is it, do you think, that has to shift for someone to start to fall in love with this book? I think you have to have a need. I think people, prosperity and consumerism and wealth have created an emotional arrogance. One of, a very close friend of mine looks at me and he thinks, well, Michael, that's your crutch. That's your crutch. I don't need God. I don't need the Bible. So the downside of prosperity and materialism and consumerism is I can fulfill my immediate needs. The problem is, you know, what's the axiom? Uh, today's new car is tomorrow's trade-in and yesterday's junk keeper. So I'm getting that wrong, but you know what I'm, I'm talking about. And consumerism and materialism keep us driven. Technology, the new watch, the new phone, the new computer, the new tablet, the new, you know, electric car, that keeps us from stopping and the moment I have what is often called the long, dark night of the soul, divorce, bottom out, cancer diagnosis, your child breaks your heart, you get fired, you get slandered, maybe you get caught doing something, and all the props are knocked out, now I need God. So unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, now look at the big picture. If God's hand is sovereign over the universe, which I contend he is, and I don't like the overuse of the word story, but... In our lifetime, God 
interrupts, if you will, that's not even the best word, interrupts us. I had, had a friend that came to Christ many years ago. He was agnostic, and he was a boy on a lake on a boat, and he swears God talked to him. Well, I don't know if God talked to him or not, <laughs> but that message that at five years of age when he was in his 40s and I met him, he was a counterintelligence agency in the Army, and he lied for a living. And he told me this story, and he said, God talked to me then. And I won't say his name. I called Joe. I said, Joe, I don't know if he talked to you then or not. He's talking to you right now. (laughs) (laughs) And this is his Bible, and you and I had this conversation. And he came to Christ. But he looked back on that moment. And people have different, different experiences. But, again, I'm prattling, which I do a lot. I would say until you know your need, that you're a sinner, that you're despicable, that you're depraved, that you have no hope apart from God, and that you can do it in the flesh, and money, sex, and power, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Does that not describe Western mindset? Mm. I want this thing, you know, money, sex, and power. I often use an illustration of three umbrellas, Alex, and I say all of our sins fall under lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, Bullshit, pride of life, money, sex, and power. Mm. You may have you know, pornography, sexuality, immorality. Maybe it's acquisition, power. It's money and wealth and prosperity, or it's power. And then there's often overlap, right? Well, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, that's in the garden. That's right. When they're looking at this fruit to be what like God, that was the deception. So at the end of the day, man's condition is we're fallen, we're broken creatures, and until we stop and realize how bad off our situation is, I don't need God. Gosh. Well, and it almost seems like money, sex, and power. Okay. What are all those things? They're instant gratification. And this book, it's a lot of things, but it seems like instant gratification isn't one of them. I often say that all sin is an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. Oh, that's good. So God has provided sexual intimacy in the context of a marriage, but if I do it outside the marriage, it's an illegitimate means to a legitimate end. Same with power and money. There's a good use of money and a good use of power. If I misuse it, it's now sin. So interestingly, and that part of it, Alex, is sin is insatiable. Hmm. If pornography satisfied, we do it a few times and be done. But it's insatiable. Hmm. Money is insatiable. Power is insatiable. And so when you look at man's condition, he's feverishly trying to you know, fulfill money, sex, and power, which are hardwired into his soul, but he's trying to do it in an illegitimate way, whereas God's provided a legitimate need. And to your precise point, it's a longer game in the Bible, but it's a real game. Cindy and I taught marriage conferences for almost 20 years all over the country, and we would tell this story. I forget the woman. I forget everything. But it was a <laughs> quote I used to use, and she said, marriage is a long journey. Most couples stop before they come to the first vista. Hmm. And Cindy and I, at 42 years this year of marriage. Congratulations. Boy, thank you. God's been kind. Boy, have we seen some vistas. Hmm. Hard absolutely hauling up those mountains with a full backpack with selfishness and no money and four children and infertility and health issues and back surgeries, Uh, wine, 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 wine. But boy, when you get to the Vista, 
God has carried us this far. So anyway, yeah, again, I prattle. For a no, I, I think that's really, really helpful. And it's kind of in that context that, okay, it's delayed gratification. It's a hard book. It's an intimidating book that I think one of the things that blocked me in spite of all those things from really getting into it is I don't know that for a long time I actually knew what it was. Yeah. I looked at the Bible as a book and Every time I've heard you teach, you look at it very different than a book. So can you just right. answer that most basic question of what sure. is it? What sure. is the Bible? So we did a series called The Big Book. Uh, Hannah Seymour, my executive producer, director, boss, also my daughter. Uh, she and I <laughs> sat down. And she and I sat down and I said, I want to do this big book series, Hannah. And she said, well, I think you're crazy, but it's probably good. And so I taught through all 66 books of the Bible one Sunday at a time. <laughs> excepting one. I did second and third John together because they're, you know, half a page. But I still feel bad about that. Though. <laughs> <laughs> still some resting guilt on that. <laughs> but but the overarching thing was, how do we help people who have no concept what this book is begin to get their arms around it? And I didn't do what most Bible surveys, date, time, author, etc. cetera, were on the map. And I said, no, if a person has never read this, what are they going to get? So, for example, the first five books were called the Pentateuch, Pentateuch meaning five in Greek, and you know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That technically was the Jewish Bible. They had no other texts until much, much later. And so then you have to differentiate between narrative and wisdom literature, Psalms, which fall into a category of wisdom and prose. Then you get into books that are prophetic. You have major prophets. Minor prophets, major prophets just mean they're longer. They're not more important. It's not like this guy was the president. This <laughs> oh, guy he's was a the bigger senator, deal right than now. that guy. So he just wrote minor. a lot more. Yeah. <laughs> and then and you have what's the intertestinal silence between the last book of the old and the new. Then you have four gospel records, which are four different perspectives on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then you have the book of Acts, which is the story after Christ told them, remain in Jerusalem until I send the Holy Spirit upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and their remotest part, singular, part of the world. So in Acts chapter 2, we have this thing called Pentecost. So the Holy Spirit comes, and everybody thinks they're drunk, and it's fulfilling the new covenant from Jeremiah 31. What that means is I no longer need the rabbinic tradition and the law to tell me now I have the person of God indwelling me in the Holy Spirit. And this blows up the first century. And it's such an interesting story, Alex, because people miss the fact when Pentecost began, 3,000 people came to believe in Jesus Christ that day. Yeah, and, it, and it's like a historical account of that. That's and, crazy. And the Romans are freaking out, and the <laughs> Jews are freaking out. I love that passage in chapter two, Parthians, Scythians, Medes, et cetera, all hearing themselves in their own language. And people totally missed the context. They're hearing, what's your lineage? German, Irish, what's your German, lineage? German, primarily German. So you're speaking German. I'm speaking Italian, and we're understanding each other. That was the miracle. <laughs> Not tongues the way it's typically taught. They're dialectos. So you're speaking German. I'm speaking Italian, and that's why people said, how can they understand each other? They're all talking in their mother tongue, and nobody knows what in the world's going on. So this miracle began, and then they didn't do what God told them. He said, you'll take it to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and their remotest part of the earth. So what does God do? He scatters the church with this wonderful thing called persecution. 
And there's a word in Acts that the church was scattered, diaspereo. It's the same word used for sowing seed. Hmm. So it felt like persecution was to get them out of Dodge. And now fast forward, we have the Apostle Paul. And we have those maps in the back of the Bible, the missionary journeys. And so these are the continuation of what God promised a long time ago, codified in the new covenant, explained in Acts chapter 2 what's going to happen. And so Paul begins these missionary journeys. He's beat. He's flogged. He's running a town. They have these huge, quote, revivals, close quote. I mean, he's changing the world. And, oh, by the way, before that happened, he's trying to arrest Christians and, you know, put them in jail. He basically sanctioned the murder of Stephen. So fast forward, the Pauline corpus of literature, the, all the letters Paul writes comprise everything from Acts in your Bible pretty much, Romans, 1 Corinthians, etc. Then we have a few outliers. We have Jude. We have Peter. Uh, we have John in the epistles. And then we have the Revelation. So a shorter answer is, and I really push back on this God's story because I think when people hear story, Alex, they hear like bedtime story fictitious story, <laughs> yeah. right? This isn't that. Right. Yeah. Because it's an overused word. It's not yeah. a bad word. That's so true. But this is God's revelation mm. to a fallen world that your condition, there is no plan B. The only remedy is found is here. There's one cure for spiritual cancer. You can do any treatment you want. God bless you. You can you know, go to counseling, you can do homeopathic, you can have a farm and raise chickens. You can do whatever you want. You can't solve your spiritual cancer apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ. From front to back, this book is a book revealing Jesus Christ is the one who loves you, died in your place on your behalf instead of you to pay for your sin so you can live the way you were designed eternally with him. Gosh, that's so powerful. That lays such a foundation that it's like, man, when you describe it that way, I look at it and I'm like, I'm more fascinated by it. It's like, this thing's great. Like, And when you start to treat it as though like this stuff actually happened, it's like, yes. this is insane. Yeah. Like, yeah. this is wild. Okay, so two-part question. Why is it something worth reckoning with if you're Christian? And then why is it something worth reckoning with if you're not Christian? Let's start with the second one. For a person that doesn't believe or has, you know, and, and I've been around this. This isn't my first rodeo, Alex. People are hurt. The church has hurt them. They've been through trauma. Their parents divorced. They were real involved in a church, and maybe they were abused in a youth group. There's a lot of damage in people's lives. One of the lines I often tell people, and I told myself, is maturity is when you stop blaming your past you own your present, and you plan your future. And you can have been an abused child by an uncle or beaten by your father, whatever, and if you live as that victim, it's very difficult to grow beyond that, not minimizing what happened. So first of all, it's, you know, I got to leave my past behind. I have to own my present. Turn the page. I got to own my present. What can I do? I mean, this is your world, how you're trying to help people. These are the resources you have. You don't have these, but you got these. What are you going to do? Stop blaming the past, own the present, and more importantly, plan the future. So for a person that doesn't know God, doesn't believe in the Bible, it's an arcane book. It hates women. It promotes slavery. It hates gays. The Bible remains the number one selling book of all time, but they won't put it on the New York Times list for obvious reasons, but it still outsells any other book in any format, which is interesting. 
So it's the revealed word of God. So for the person that has never looked at it, there are ways to start that aren't intimidating. You got to memorize the multiplication table at some point in life. (laughs) You got to learn your ABCs. You got to learn noun, verbs, and adjectives at some point in life. Maybe diagram a sentence if you're really fortunate, but all that to say, it's a systematic way of learning. It's not that hard. And here's the cool thing. You got your whole life to do this. Mm. You're not going to grow. I mean, I've been studying this book now for, goodness, 50 years, maybe more now, and I feel like I know 10% of it. My professors, the true scholars who taught me Scripture, I mean, you know, I will never be them. Stop. That's not the objective. The objective is who you are, who you are, who I am, and how do I read the text, and what is God saying to me? What did he say then? What is he saying now? How to apply it? So I would just encourage you, and we can talk about what to read. For the believer in Christ, I think he, she has to come to terms with, is God important or not? I mean my rules and reigns, my feelings, my experiences, my hopes, my dreams. And frankly, you and I live in Middle Tennessee, which is almost, not to be unkind, but it's almost a cult of prosperity and success and business. They're great things. At the expense of your relationship with the eternal God, it's a problem. Mm. So the Christian who's busy with you know getting married, having children, paying for schools, whatever you're doing, buying cars, saving money, being debt-free, all these wonderful things, those are all temporal. What's eternal? Mm. So I think for the Christian, and something that God has, you know, kind of rubbed my nose in the last 10, 12 weeks, Alex, has been, you know, as, as a Bible teacher, I'm looking at a room of people that are on this bell curve of never read the Bible and probably know more about the Bible than I do. And all points in between, right? Mm-hmm. And so when I look at those people, I'm thinking, where are they on this spectrum? I try to ask answer the question, what do they need to hear from God? And that's what I've been doing for years. And I've kind of erased that model and said, you know, maybe I need to rethink this. You need to see who the person of Jesus Christ is. Mm-hmm. Because until you understand his life, death, burial, and resurrection, until you understand he is fully God, fully man, until you understand he's more important than whoever lives at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, until you understand he's more important than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or going into outer space or China or India combined, until you understand he's more important than a sustainable car, until you understand he's more important than whatever it is on your horizon, homeschooling, rotating your grains, having chickens, until you understand that, you and I will live an off-kilter life. And so my new message, newer message to myself and to our little church here and through our, the ministry of In Context has been, you need to see Christ more clearly the way the Bible explains him. Mm. And that to me for a Christian will begin, why should I read this book? Yeah. I heard, I believe it was someone that was a non-believer once that they were talking about the gospels. And I loved how they put this because it actually opened my eyes as someone that is a believer to the personhood of Jesus, not just the divinity of Jesus. Because he's like, 2,000 years ago, there's this guy walking around that can be historically proven that's walking up to people saying things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's like, what the hell is that? <laughs> right? And it's yeah. like, that's how we should kind of look at this, it seems like. It's like, right. it, I mean, it's if you actually read it as though he was real, it's a pretty astonishing thing, regardless of whether you believe he yeah. was the son of God or not. 
Well, I believe it was Mahatma Gandhi who said, I would have become a Christian if it were not for Christians. Because he was so captivated by the life of Christ. And, you know, we look at Gandhi and Gandhi-esque kind of philosophies and we go, yeah, he was kind and he lost a sandal getting on a train. So he threw the other sandal on the ground and someone said, why did you do that? And he goes, well, one is no, of no use to me, but two might help somebody else. I mean, he was this perfect guy, right? This humanitarian wise guy who walks around in a robe. He's Gandhi. He's Gandalf. You know, we want to talk to him. Jesus Christ so outstrips any combination of human reverence that we look at these men and women and we revere them. And that is a failure on the part of the local church. It's a failure on parents who don't help their kids learn to read the Bible. But I'm not in a blame game. What do we do now? And so, you know, this book, and, and the great thing about technology, you got a fancy tablet there. I got a tablet, a phone, and a watch, and all this stupid stuff. <laughs> it's there in two clicks. I can be on Bible.org and Bible Hub. I can be anywhere. We don't take advantage of it. Mm. So for the Christian, we did a series not long ago called Get Your Nose in the Book. And I talked to all these subject matter experts that I've known for years, and some are newer friends. But we all are opining the lack of reading the Bible. Scott Lindsay, who works with uh, Logos Bible Software, Faith Life Bible, dear friends of mine, Scott's a remarkable guy, and he cited a study. If you read the Bible once a week, it has no effect. Twice a week, no effect. Three times a week, no effect. Four times a week, something happens. People are less anxious. People are more inclined to go to church. People are more inclined to want to read the Bible. And it just goes up from there. So uh, That's like data that says that. Yes, like, this that's is in, data. That's, in, that's is really remarkable. Data. It that's is remarkable. But it reminds us, you know, morning by morning, it reminds us about his mercies are new every morning. You know, the Psalms, sometimes people talk about the law in the Old Testament is hard and legalistic and difficult. David said, I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Now, did that mean all day long he thought about it? No, it meant he he went back to the well again and again and again and again through the day. And this is a remarkable parallel. When you look at Bible characters who were keeping a close relationship with God and his word, they didn't get into trouble. The moment they get their eyes off the word of God and the God of creation, they get in trouble. One of my favorite stories, uh, the book of Judges, of course, are these cycles of sin. Mm. There's sin. God brings judgment. It's a horrible book. There's some pretty hard stuff it's in It's a that horrible book. book. I love it. It's a horrible <laughs> book because it, it, it's true to humanity. And their sin is so bad and so odious, God finally says, enough. And so the temple's destroyed. The goods are carried away. The period of Judges is horrible. It ends in civil war. Each of these judges comes up at a certain time, and as they devolve, we know the story of Samson, right? Samson and Deliah and all the, if you're as old as I am, there are all these movies made with Samson and Deliah, Hedy Lamar and Victor Mature. Anyway, <laughs> but the story goes, he's this guy, he's huge, he's strong, God gives him power and he abuses it for himself. But there's all these little hints because he's going on this journey and he sees a woman he sees a carcass of a lion. He sees the thing, and he goes out of his way to pursue what he saw. 
And the text is telling us, pay attention to what you look at. Mm. And full circle of the story, what happens to Samson? Mm. They poked his eyes out. The very thing that he was using to direct his life. That's fascinating. And it, and it just reveals again what you look at, the affections of your heart. So back to reading, you know, if you get up every morning, 5, 10, 20, 30 minutes, we can talk about that again in more detail next time. But I think we grossly underestimate our time in the Word and how it will affect our life for good. It's And you said it a moment ago, it's delayed gratification, but I would say it's more of a discipline. You're not going to go run a marathon tomorrow no matter how well-rounded you are as an athlete. You're going to train. Some of the fastest training programs for a marathon are like four months, mm. and some of the better ones are nine to ten months. Well, and that's one of the biggest lessons that I think I'm so grateful for in working with. I know it's someone that you know, Dave Ramsey, is just the value of compounding. Like It's like you're not going to become a gospel theologian in one day. But boy, you can make progress today in yeah. 15 minutes every day for yep. five years. You look up and it's like, man, you could do something. What happened? Yeah. Okay. Before we close out this section, we're specifically talking right now to the leader. And we always say, if someone depends on you, then you are a leader. So sometimes it's leader in the home. Sometimes it's leader in the community. A lot of times it's leaders in the marketplace that people are depending on them and looking to them as a model. Why is it important for that person to have a rhythm and routine and habit of reading the Bible? I read a book years ago called Leadership and Self-Deception by the Albin Institute. A very interesting group, but it's sort of a Lencioni story where it's a kind of a, you know, they Terrible. tell a story of story. Yeah. If you worked for me and I was your boss uh, and I don't like you, oh, gosh. okay, <laughs> you know it. I know it. All the people that work around, you know it. Everybody knows Michael really doesn't like Alex, but Michael tries to pretend he likes Alex, but there's innuendo, there's neuroscience, there's cortisol in the conversation all these things are going on and alex knows the boss doesn't like me it's a remarkable and very exposing little book but i use that to answer your question to say a man or a woman who's a leader if he or she is in the word and god is working in their life again i'll use the phrase you greatly underestimate how powerful that is imperceptible influence really is more important than perceived influence. We can put goals and objectives on a list, and this is our company, this is our product, this is our service. We're going to do this. We're going to have smart goals. We're going to measure them. God bless you. If that person has a deep core, they're not anxious. They're patient. They're wise. They're thoughtful. Yeah, they can stand their ground and say, no, even a difficult boss who has integrity, we all respect. We all respect. I mean, Dave Ramsey is a dear friend. Dave is a tough customer, <laughs> but you respect him. Mm. And it's like, okay, I'm going to pay attention. I may not initially agree or like what he's saying. I better listen more carefully. And am I reacting to the leader or am I reacting to the fact that it changes the way I do things or the way I want to do things? I mean, people today, this is your world, Alex. People who work for someone else want to do things their way. And so a leader has a very 
challenging role to be kind and not dictatorial and you know the customer is now the hero and all this kind of stuff great go for it at the end of the day if you've got a core you're grounded in scripture you're exposing yourself to it every day and you're going to be convicted if you read proverbs 14 today you're going to be convicted by at least five or six strokes right <laughs> well talk- and if you're not you're probably doing it wrong well yeah yeah well I, it yeah I, it doesn't take that much I, mean, <laughs> I talk too much and it's my bane a man of many words unavoidably lies oh i hate that verse of proverbs. <laughs> and and so the good part of that is, and then taking as a leader, your transparency with what you're learning gives you so much more gravitas than financial remuneration or public accolades or promotions or incentives. Those are good, but they're gone tomorrow. They're gone tomorrow. A That's bonus right. is gone tomorrow. What have you done for me lately? No one says, we got the greatest bonus seven years ago. What's going to happen this Christmas? Mm-hmm. That's what they're worried about. So people are people. And I would just say your walk with Christ as a leader will have a more profound effect, and I will call it imperceptible influence. You don't know how God's going to use it. Last thing I'll say on this, I pick up trash. If I walk across a church parking lot or I go in the church bathroom and it's messy, I'll take a bunch of paper towels, I'll wipe down everything, I'll pick up the pieces on the ground, put them in the trash can, push the paper towels down in the trash can, I'll do all that. I get caught once in a while doing this. Well, I didn't know the pastor was a janitor. Ha, 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 ha. You know, and I don't do it for, I, I do it because A, I'm obsessive compulsive. It drives me crazy. And B, I'm thinking about when someone walks in this restroom, it's disgusting. And I don't like that for anybody else. So I take 90 seconds. Now, fast forward. I'm embarrassed to tell you the number of people that will tell me, you know, I like your Bible teaching, blah, blah, blah. You know what really impressed me? I saw you clean a bathroom one time. Imperceptible influence. What you think you're doing may or may not, hopefully it does, but it's the imperceptible part. Are you kind? Mm. Are you compassionate? Are you forgiving? Do you own your mistakes? Goodness, I'm sure you train your folks. You got to say I was wrong and you need to name it. I was wrong. I was mad. I was anxious. Forgive me, Joe for blowing up in front of these other peoples. I didn't respect you. It was wrong on my part. You know, a real true mea culpa done properly will get far more results than a big vision and a big pound of table and, you know, get mad at people and fire 15% of your base on a text (laughs) message because you're dumb. But anyway, I'm prattling again. So I, I would say you grossly underestimate your walk with Christ has an aura about it, not to sound too mystical, because if you're being transformed by God's word, God's spirit, God's people, people will see this. Mm, I love that phrase, imperceptible influence, because I have literally seen leaders, and I've seen this with myself, that start applying themselves to reading the Bible daily, and they will say, something with my people has changed. I don't even know what it is. I, I've just started doing this. And it's like, okay, well, now we know what it is. It's imperceptible influence. Like, yeah. you've changed, and that's changed everything else. And it was done not by you. It was done by the power of the Holy yes. Spirit with inside you. Okay, what are some of the mistakes that people often make with jumping into the Bible that actually cuts them off at the knees and they're not able to sustain it or follow through with it? Number one are these Bible reading programs. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. 
And a lot of well-intentioned people say, I'm going to do that for 22. I'm going to do it for 21. I'm going to do 23. And they last about two or three days, maybe a week or two. And then they just go, I can't keep up. And so you set an unrealistic goal. Secondly, and it's really probably like number 10, but it's important, is the version of the Bible. Because certain Bibles are easier to read. For example, the King's English is very cumbersome for the modern reader. And again, we don't read. We're, we're reading right now at about a fifth to sixth grade level in America. The NIV was published for a seventh grade level reader. The King's English and the New American Standard, the Bible I prefer, is gauged for a 12th grade level reader. So already you're handicapped when you pick up the Bible. So I wouldn't use these as study Bibles, but for reading the New Living Translation, the, I mean, there are all kinds of Bibles, all kinds of online Bibles. You want a Bible that's approachable. Mm. Now, we can talk about study later on, but just to read it. Crossway Publishing has done something interesting where they've taken all the numbers and verses and paragraph breaks out, and they put it together like a Grisham book. It's still the Bible. And it comes in this beautiful slipcase, hard cloth covered thing. But now you're reading like eight volumes. So on the one hand, I love the feel and the margin because the Bible is the only book you own that has verses and these little marks at the bottom and this column in the middle. That What's that about? And these headings and these bold. Ah, you know. So a book that's easier to read would be, again, number one, don't set a goal to try to do something Herculean. And number two, find a translation that you enjoy reading. Dang, I love that first one too, because I've totally been guilty of like, <laughs> unless I read this much in a month, then I'm not You're actually toast. a believer. Yeah, well, and yeah, it's yeah. like, golly, it's like, man, like you can read a verse and be a believer if you actually internalize yeah. the verse. And so what is an achievable goal? What is something that people that Good. are very new to this and are, would not be reading three, four, five times a week right now right. that you would say, man, start here. This is achievable. There are daily disciplines. Every human, well, most people do. You get up, you brush your teeth, you make your bed, you get dressed, you shave, maybe you put makeup on, maybe you get dressed. You might have, you know, whatever your little breakfast thing is on the way out the door. I try to help people look at the Bible as one of those daily disciplines. Fred Smith said something years ago in an article, maturity is turning discipline into reflex. And I love that because I used to be somewhat of an athlete. Five back surgeries later, I can't do much. But when you work out, you don't start. We talked about it last time, running a marathon in two weeks. You're going to run you know, a mile. And then two miles, and you're going to run a walk. And then on Saturday, you might run three miles, and you're going to take a break, and you work right. So look at the Bible as a spiritual discipline, not checking a box. Mm. And the thing that I often tell people is not that you should, it's that you can. It's not that you have to, it's that you get to. Now, when I was in college, Alex, I heard this statistic that if you do something for 21 days, it becomes a habit. <laughs> you ever heard this? <laughs> oh, yeah, I've heard it. So I set my alarm at 5 o'clock, and I got up every morning at 5 o'clock. I bought a $20 coffee pot. I didn't like coffee. I didn't drink coffee, but I had to get a coffee pot. I bought a $20 coffee pot living in this rental house in college, and I had the coffee made, and I'd take a quick shower, and I'd sit down with a cup of coffee. I didn't have central heat. I'd wrap up my sleeping bag in my parka, and I had my Bible. And by God, I was going to read my Bible every day. 21 days, 5 o'clock without fail, got up. 
the 22nd day, I no more wanted to get up at five o'clock and make that coffee and read my Bible than I did the first day. <laughs> Turns out there's not a magic line at 21 days. I yeah. did this for years and I guilted and shamed three out of seven, five out of seven, four out of seven, seven out of seven. You're not a Christian as you intimated. And I tell people, I did this for three years and one day it clicked. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. It's not that I should, it's that I can. Think of your relationship with God like a good friendship. If you and I were to become friends, really good friends. We're not quite yet, but we, when we... Well, <laughs> we, we would need two things. Yeah. Something in common and time. Mm. I reduce a friendship to something in common and time. For example, I've got audiophile friends. I'm a little bit of an audiophile and I have very, you know, cool stuff at home and headphone systems and whatnot. And I've got friends that they're my go-to. We have something in common and we spend time together. Anything in life that you do, if you're, a, you know, a, a lot of women today work out. My wife and I are marvel at young moms who just work out insatiably. And you know how they do it? Friends, how they become friends, working out post-pregnancy, two or three kids they want to get back in shape they got something in common and they over time work out and that is far more successful than trying to lose your weight and work out in isolation mm -hmm. which is why peloton for example works yeah right pretty brilliant something business in common model. yep that's right athletes working out and time together so the bible is our thing we have in common with god mm. i need time mm. so i look at opening this is cultivating my relationship with Jesus Christ. He calls me my friend if I do what he commanded me. Interesting, the Bible never says I get to call Jesus my friend, but we do anyway. The scripture, he says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So think of him as a personal relationship that you're cultivating. You need time with him, and you've got the common interest in your pocket, on your phone, or a real Bible. One of the things we talk a lot about with the leaders that we work with is the difference between a destination mindset and a practice mindset. You kind of almost have to view it as practice, like I'm just reading daily and I'm becoming the type of person yes. that reads the Bible, and it just becomes something you do, not somewhere you're trying to get. Is that fair to say? Oh, totally. It's process and product, I think about. There's the process of studying it, but there are products. Okay, I need to respond to this text from a super basic method, we call it Bible study methodology, there are three key steps, observation, interpretation, application. So when I read the Bible, I'm observing it. Who, what, where, when, why, how, what's going on, what's the story, what's the context, who wrote it, what's going as best I can. Then you're observing. You're not trying to find meaning. You're just reading it for face value. Now, let's just say we're using an hour as a illustration. If I have an hour of time to read and study, I would spend about maybe 40 minutes in the observation stage, not trying to figure out meaning or applying it. Just what is it saying? What's it about? What's that word? What? what? And then I'm going to try to look on interpretation. What does it mean? Mm. Too many people jump to meaning right away. I have this phrase, Alex, that context covers a multitude of interpretational sins. Hmm. 
Because people will say this verse means, or it means to me, that that's a trigger for me. When people are- <laughs> You mean that, you don't love oh, when people say that? A, oh, they read it, what does this mean to you? I don't care what this means to you. What does it mean? I mean, we, we got some interesting, I think someone put that up on our Instagram account the other day, and I got some nasty comments about it, and I go, I don't care. I don't care what you think it means. What's it mean? What does that do for a person whenever they decide to surrender to the idea that there is something that is absolutely true and my feelings or interpretations or things like that are really irrelevant compared to that truth? You have just diagnosed the current decade and maybe going back 20 years to, in Michael Easley's puny brain opinion, this is the issue. Are my experiences and my emotions that important? And I go back to what we talked about earlier. Consumerism, materialism, prosperity have created a foundation that I, me, my is important. How I feel, how I experience. We've all heard these stories about someone's depressed and they haven't read the Bible and they're going through a divorce or their child's got cancer or they lost their job and they go away to a lake house and they're all depressed and discouraged and they're sitting on the porch in the back of a cup of coffee and a red bird lands right on the rail and looks at them and God visited me. Now, I'm not trying to be unkind to people who are hurt and minimize emotion. What I'm saying is emotions change. You don't make decisions purely on emotion. Mm. And experiences are just that. They're an experience. They might be a good experience. They might be a bad experience. I would so love to have these people that told me, God led me to do X, and I did it, and then it went bad. And you know what they typically say? They won't say, oh, I was wrong. They say, well, God led me you know, from D.C. to Chicago because he knew I wouldn't go straight to Nashville. This is just stupid. Why are we working so hard? So is the word of God, the authoritative word of God, God has spoken, as my professor Howard Dinnick said, and he did not stutter. Mm. The other thing he said that I've so appreciated over the years is that this is not what God would say if he was here. It is what God is saying because he is here. Hmm. So this Bible, which is what we're talking about, right? It's living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to judge the heart's intention of the mind, dividing is both joint and marrow and soul and spirit. This book is sharp. It's true. It's alive. It's a living document in the sense that Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. Hmm. Mark Twain said, it ain't those parts of the Bible I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do. (laughs) Right. So to begin with, your comment was spot on. It is not about how you feel. It is not about your experience. It's about aligning yourself to the God of the universe. I have an incredible primary doctor. He's brilliant. Internal medicine. Brilliant man. I go to Bert and I say, Bert. Here, he does all the tests. He says, Michael, this number is bad. This number is too high. We have to fix this number. Now, well, Bert, I don't like, I don't feel, I, 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 you know. I don't, you mean he doesn't yeah, ask you your yeah, opinion yeah, on no, the number? No, no, no. I said, you know, well, can we do the blood test again? No, it's a blood test. It's, it, you know, and so we had this collegial little fight. And he goes, you need to either do this or do this or take these medications. But I'm concerned. Now, he's been to med school. He's done residencies, he did fellowships, he's board certified, et cetera. Am I going to trust him as the expert? Now, I do. 
And are you going to trust that that's true? I think it would be incorrect for us to end by saying this is so easy. Now just go and do it (laughs) because that's probably unrealistic. Like this is hard. And so if you're sitting across from one of our listeners having a cup of coffee with them and they're saying like, man, I just have so much to do right now. I don't know how and why I should make time for this. What would your challenge be to them or your encouragement be to them to actually apply themselves to this? A couple things. Number one, C.S. Lewis said to say I don't have enough time is like a fish in the middle of the ocean saying there isn't enough water. We all have 24 hours in a day. And you might sleep four like me or eight or 12 like one of my daughters. You know, kidding. Uh, I have a daughter <laughs> who loves to sleep. But you still have the same amount of hours in a day. Martin Luther, not the civil rights guy, Martin Luther, the reformer, and I'm going to get this wrong. Forgive me, Martin, and those who know Martin Luther better than me. Luther said that I think he spent four hours every morning in study and prayer personally before he did anything related to his job as a teacher. And one student asked him, how do you have time to do that? And he essentially said, if I did not do that before I began, I could never do what I did during the day. Personal preparation. Anyone who plays an instrument, if you're going to be, a lot of people play the piano. How many Van Cliburns? A lot of people can sing, you know, whatever. How many are the top tier? I think it was Bennis and Nanis said the difference between the average successful person and the super successful is less than 10%. They're doing that which others will not do. So back to the Bible. I would submit it's not really that hard. What it is is a choice. For me, if it doesn't happen in in the first of the day, it never happens. For me, if I turn on the technology, I'm never going to read it. It's got to be this book that I have physically in my lap and a set of color pens I have that I like to use. And then when I finish marking it up, I get a new Bible and I start over again. Morning by morning, I I just don't think you can live the Christian life apart from constantly nourishing yourself in faith and sound doctrine, as Paul told Timothy. So it's not that hard. It's just a choice. Mm. It is a discipline, but as Fred Smith said, maturity is turning discipline into reflex. It's not that you have to. It's you get to. It's not that you should. It's that you can And that, to me, is the paradigm shift. And God's not mad if you don't do it. God doesn't fold his arms and walk around heaven. You stupid Michael, you need to read the Bible today. God loves you. He's Mm -hmm. a perfect father. And why wouldn't I want to spend time with my father? Let me close with one verse, and this is from 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Paul has a whole list of verbs, but he says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all you do be done in love. All five of those are imperative terms. Be alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, do all that you do in love. And the act like men thing, I know for our politically concerned audience, he's not talking about chauvinistic. He's talking about being strong. He's talking about standing forward and smiling at the future. So be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, and let all you do be done in love. Mm. Thanks, Michael. Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, 
mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.